This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. We've got some breaking news, folks. And by breaking news, I mean you've been hearing breathless coverage of this story for hours. Apple's market capitalization crossed the trillion-dollar threshold today. But on a solid day where the Dow dipped 8 points, S&P gained 0.49%, and the Nasdaq pole vaulted 1.24%. A lot of fireworks over there. Does Apple's epic valuation really matter? Actually, yes. You bet it does, particularly for us. We've championed it all the way. In fact, Apple matters more than the Chinese saying that they won't stand for President Trump's tariff raise from 10 to 25. Frankly, by the way, you know, China doesn't have as much leverage here with a debt-laden balance sheet, a slowing economy, and a wilting stock market. Apple's matters more than whether the yield in the benchmark 10-year Treasury crosses 3% or not. What makes this trillion-dollar level so meaningful? Simple. Apple's the first, but it probably won't be the last. And when Microsoft and Amazon and Alphabet follow, well, then maybe it'll be a very big deal. But how the heck did this even happen? A few years ago, a company with a trillion-dollar valuation would have been inconceivable. The notion that any company could ever be worth more than a half trillion was considered dangerous, foolhardy, seditious, maybe the sign of a pending crash. Why? Because it happened once. That's right. In March of 2000, at the height of the dot-com bubble, Cisco, yeah, Cisco, the networking company, the Internet backbone, had a market cap that hit $555 billion, and the stock was trading at 120 times earnings. Within the next year, Cisco lost nearly three-quarters of its value. As the whole cohort came crashing back to earth, investors are terrified of repeating that experience. You know what? But once the $500 billion level was breached a second time and we didn't crash, a whole host of tech names have been off the races, including three of the stocks in FANG, our acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and the artist formerly known as Google, now Alphabet. Why was Apple the first one to cross the trillion-dollar finish line, and what can we learn from it? What really happened here? What was the background for it? All right, first off, there's one huge difference that separates Apple from Fang. Unlike these high flyers, Apple stock has never been hideously expensive on a price-to-earnings basis. Even after today's run, the darn thing sells for just 15 times next year's earnings estimates, below the average stock. And when you back out the company's $243 billion cash flow, get this, it's more like 11.5 times earnings. I mean, you got to go pretty down, pretty far down the food chain to find a company that's that cheap. Second, Apple has been misunderstood for years now. It's not just a hardware play. It's an ecosystem. A lot of companies claim they're an ecosystem. Apple is one. That's why the company can charge for all sorts of services like picture backup while taking a big cut every time you buy something in the App Store. Wall Street values Apple's service revenue stream more highly than its episodic cell phone business, in part because the service stream has far more secular growth. 
You know that a subscription business, and we've been big on the subscription economy on the show, a subscription business is perhaps the most reliable and predictable form of revenue, which is why the stock deserves a much higher price earnings multiple than it has. That's one huge reason why Apple could trade right through this trillion-dollar mark, leave it in the dust. Third, I've said it before, I'll say it again, Apple is not a tech company. It's a consumer products company with the best devices ever which is why it's got more consumer loyalty than practically any other brand on earth. By the way, that is stressed over and over again in the conference call, but the analysts never seem to hear it. How many other products have 96% customer loyalty and 98% customer satisfaction? Those are the numbers for the highest end, uh, the 10, which no one believed in. thousand bucks. Why does this classification matter? Because consumer product companies rarely sell for less than 20 times earnings. You know, we're going to hear later from the best of the best, Clorox, okay? That stock trades at 22 times earnings after 6% run today. You know why? Because the company guided to an astounding 2 to 4% growth next year. By almost any metric you care to name, Apple's a double-digit grower, and the service stream is growing at a 31% clip, $9.5 billion this last quarter. Yet the stock is much, much cheaper on an earnings basis than bleach, than Clorox. If we simply valued the bleach maker, uh, uh, Apple like the bleach maker, guess what? Uh, If I say it, will I have any credibility? I'll whisper it. $300 stock. And remember, 2 to 4% for Apple is ludicrous. It's going much faster than that. We're talking maybe three times that. Still, another 100 points cannot be ruled out, given its consumer product compares. Clorox to Apple to 300 how can Apple start getting the recognition it deserves? We need some brave brokerage house to transfer coverage from the tech analysts, so many naysayers, to the consumer product analysts. That would be a huge positive, and I bet it happens. Fourth reason Apple won the foot race, while the company may seem, may seem dominant, it still has an enormous total addressable market that hasn't even come close to tapping. Take personal computers. Most businesses don't use Apple. You know, you, you always get a HP, you get a Dell, right? But the moment you let your workers pick their own PCs, as Salesforce.com did recently, they overwhelmingly choose Macs. And if Apple starts winning corporate PC business, wow, that division will accelerate like crazy. And I know you don't even look at it anymore, but believe me, you'll see a hockey stick. Apple's almost uh, it's also merely the third largest cell phone company on Earth by volume. Get this. First quarter, Samsung shipped 78.2 million. Apple shipped only 52 million phones. Now, the price point is a lot higher for Apple, but the iPhone is so beloved that I think they could potentially take a ton of share, especially with all those telco subsidies. Fifth, Apple has so much cash that it's perfectly reasonable for them to continue to buy back a huge amount of stock every day, even up here. And that's basically what they've been doing. With $243 billion in the bank, Apple's biggest constraint, according to CFO Luca Maestri, who's fabulous, is that the government won't allow any company to buy as much as it wants on any given day. At times, these volume restrictions have put a lid on Apple's repurchase program. When I pressed Luke on this, he called the stock undervalued. When the guy in charge of the buyback thinks his stock is cheap, you better believe Apple will be there. Underneath, as we call it. And that's one reason why the stock tends to be a terrific buy into any dips. It's also the reason for the comforting consistency with which it now trades. It didn't used to do that before the big buyback. Ongoing buybacks. Six, Apple is very non-promotional management, which actually is appealing. Uh, it, it, but maybe it isn't. What, yeah, maybe it took them a little longer to get to trillion dollars. But let me give you the longer-term thesis about having someone who's not promotional at the helm. CEO Tim Cook cares more about the quality of Apple's products than he does about the quality of its stock price. If he thinks the quality of the product is subpar, the product will never see the light of day. He's taking big risks, court configuration changes, earbuds. They still can't make enough of sky-high price points. And every time, he's been right. That said, Cook does monitor the stock periodically. 
uh, more than 100 points ago, May 2nd, 2016, when the Bears kept saying Apple's best days were behind it. He came on on this show and pretty much called the bottom right here now. This is an exciting clip. Watch it. But what I can tell you is backing up and looking at the larger picture, we're in great markets. We have huge opportunities geographically. We've got great innovations in the pipeline. People love our products. They love using our services. All of this to me equals great opportunity. Now your viewers have to decide what they want to do, obviously, but this is how I feel and and that's what I can tell you. You know, I say, don't trade it, own it. Don't trade it, own it. And when you heard what he had to say, I hope you did that. Seventh, skepticism has played a huge role in this rally. People are constantly trading in and out of Apple on every data point about its supply chain. Analysts upgrade, downgrade, upgrade, downgrade. The stock tends to spook people. China worries, price points, component scares. It never ends. But that wall of worry is something that great stocks climb, and few have climbed it better than Apple. Eighth reason. We always heard that the law of large numbers would stop Apple's growth rate at a certain point. We were told that paying up here would be lunacy, basically because what, what goes up must come down. But the service revenue stream became a subscription company within a hardware company, so the law of large numbers ceased to apply. Ninth, frankly, a trillion bucks ain't that what, ain't what it used to be. This is a non-Apple point, but you got to count it. You got to count for inflation. When companies initially started crossing the hundred billion dollar barrier, it was considered to be wrong, stupid, dangerous to buy them. Adjusted for inflation for back then, a trillion's not that out of hand. It just sounds big. Finally, ten. While Apple may have won the foot race to, uh, to, to trillion, it won't be a lawn up here for long, I think. You're going to start seeing Microsoft and Amazon in the same club because of how well they're doing. And among these three tech titans, I have to tell you, there's a ton of pin action. And you saw it today with the Nasdaq doing so well. Here's the bottom line. Like the iPhone 10, Apple stock deserves to sell for what people are willing to pay for it. One of my favorite lines in the conference call with Tim. Uh, and apparently that's a trillion dollars. But frankly, you know what? I bet it's headed higher. Maybe a lot higher. I- Andy in Indiana. Andy. Hey, I, have a, I got a company. They had great earnings last week in the uh, quarterly report. They raised yearly guidance. You got no debt on the balance sheet. They got a new product line coming out soon. I'm not understanding the 40% short interest they have, but I really like this as a long-term holding, and I want your opinion. iRobot. Well, I'll tell you why they have such a big short position. They've been unable to demonstrate uh, just consistent earnings, and they don't tell their story. And if they wanted to get their stock higher, this is where you go. This is where the investor who is not the hedge fund flitting out of Apple comes to learn things. iRobot, you're welcome here. Lynn in Virginia, Lynn. Hi, Jim. My name is Lynn, and I am a real estate agent in Virginia. I was um, watching your show last night, your feature on the stay-at-home culture, and I was wondering how you think it might impact the real estate industry. Well, that's interesting. I was wondering, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, uh, I was specifically wondering about um, brokerage firms, real estate brokerage firms like Redfin, since millennials are starting to finally buy houses. 
And um, so anyway, I was wondering if um, what you thought about the stay-at-home culture and it, whether it was a catalyst for real estate stocks. I have to say, and I talk about this a lot with my wife because she's a broker, Corcoran Group, which is a large broker here. Large, she's a, a salesperson. And we don't see the relationship, frankly. And that's because there aren't enough units being built. And that's what's keeping a lid on that part of the stay-at-home. And I'm so mad that Wingstop was supposed to be in that piece, and I left it out, and Wingstop's climbing. And I didn't push Take-Two, which had such an amazing quarter. All I did would say take two is going to be really good. I want to slap myself, but then it'll knock itself out of alignment. Anyway, Jerry in Missouri. Jerry. Jim, thank you for all of your great advice. Oh, thank you, including Sonos telling people to buy it. I just, I'm caught up on this thing. Go ahead. Jim, the cost basis for my position is only $90.38. Your target on Action Alerts Plus is $130. In the last month, has been up to $101.70, but it can't seem to get over the news of the lack of pipeline capacity. And I'm worried with Anadarko's miss that uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Am I still sitting on a good pick? Of course, the stock I'm talking about is Simrex, right? All right, this is a great call. First of all, I, I beg to differ. The Anadarko was not a miss. That was just the stock going down. I went over that quote. I took it home last night. I read it three times. There was no miss there. Anadarko was very good. I'll explain that next week on our club call for action alerts. And I think that Simrex will screw it up, frankly. Uh, I've been trying to move a little bit out of Simrex and more into Anadarko. They'll screw it up. Why? Because there's so much natural gas still. But it's a great company. If they'd come on air, they'd be able to tell themselves. But the only guy who's come on air in that whole oil patch, there's one refiner, that stock is up huge, and one pipeline company, that stock's up huge. I genuinely believe that Simrex will be much higher next year, but no one other than me and maybe the CEO agrees. To a trillion and beyond. Apple stock deserves to trade for what people will pay for it. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that capitalism? And a trillion dollars it is. On Man Money Tonight, I'm speaking to Clorox, the best of the consumer product group after its earnings. Find out how the 100-year-old household brands is keeping itself fresh. 6% move today. Wow. Then, as troubled as Fang may be, I'll tell you why investors continue to circle back to Fang. And with news that Starbucks is partnering with Alibaba, can the company continue to be the coffee king in China? I'm talking with the CEO, so stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. A staple for American households. You get colors their cleanest. Nothing beats the strength of Clorox 2. And a brand that has influenced pop culture. <laughs> That's the power of pine salt, baby. Can Clorox continue to clean up the competition? Don't get mad, get glad.
For everyone who was fretting that the consumer packaged goods stocks might not have what it takes to win in this industrial renaissance environment, with rising interest rates and making their dividends less attractive and surging costs, both for commodities and for transport, eating into the profits. Well, just take one look at Clorox. Here's an iconic consumer goods play. You know it is uh, glad bags, pine salt, fresh step, kitty litter, kings for charcoal, burst bees, Hidden Valley salad dressing, and of course, the eponymous Clorox cleaning products. After the less than perfect quarter we just got from Procter & Gamble, you might have been worried about these guys. But this morning, Clorox, which gets the vast majority of its sales from the United States, reported some very encouraging numbers. While the company posted a small top line miss, it was real small. Its earnings came in higher than expected, $0.08 cent beat of a buck fifty-eight basis. Even better, imagine we gave us a surprisingly strong forecast for the 2019 fiscal year. They're looking for 2 to 4% sales growth, driven by relentless innovation. And that's why the stock surged an incredible $8 or 6% today. So can this thing keep climbing? Let's check in with Ben O'Doris, the chairman and CEO of Clorox. Hear more about the quarter and the company's prospects. Mr. Dora, welcome back to Mad Money. Always good to be back. Thank you, Jim. All right. So, Ben, I usually talk about the exciting products because they are what I what grabs me. But I've got to say, you, you've now finished an, uh, another fiscal year. You're getting closer and closer to your 2020 date. And I'm picking on a line that was in your comp school that's incredible. We're proud of our strong track record of delivering annual cost savings of more than $100 million, which we achieved for the 11th consecutive year. How is that possible? Well, Cost savings is a multifunctional sport at Clorox and has been a hallmark of ours. And that's why we've been able to deliver another strong fiscal year for our shareholders with 3% sales growth and 17% earnings per share growth on top of 4% sales growth and 9% earnings growth next year, uh, last year. So we've always done well focusing on what we can control in what is clearly a difficult macroeconomic environment. And that's why we're doing well. And that's why we have confidence in our strategy. Uh, one of the things that's amazing, I think people think, well, Clorox is bleached, no pricing power whatsoever. You actually have some brands that are incredible. But your confidence in this call about your ability to put through price is unlike any that I've heard of in the packaged goods industry. What is that confidence based on? We are taking pricing on about 50% of our global portfolio this fiscal year. And we're confident in our ability to execute and that's because we have a lot of experience taking pricing. That's because pricing is backed up by strong analytics. But most importantly, because these price increases are cost justified and because we're not just taking pricing, but we are innovating on our brands and we're investing in our brands. And as a result, our consumers are telling us that our brands are better value than the brands that our competitors have and our brand equities are superior than those of our competitors. That's what the confidence is rooted in. Why do you have to wait for your raw cost to go up to do this then? I mean, when I read this, I, I kept thinking to myself, why didn't Beno take them up anyway? I mean, obviously the public knows that the stuff is good. Or, or is that just because you try to offer value and you really don't want to do anything that makes it so that the customer says, wow, this got too expensive? We are value, very value driven. Offering brands that deliver superior value to consumers is critical because value remains king to the consumer. So when we take pricing, we certainly want to remain committed to our ability to deliver brands that drive value to consumers and make a real difference in their lives. So this is all about balance. This is all about not just taking care of the short-term cost wins that we have, which pricing helps us address, 
but driving the business with a keen eye on the long term. This is about winning a strategy period, one year, three year, five years. It's not about winning the quarter. Excellent. That's what I was hoping you would say, because I believe this is a sustainable gain that your stock had today. There are things that happen that are almost episodically uh, jaw-dropping for me at Clorox. Uh, I've always used your kitty litter. Uh, Clean paws, uh, big launch, double-digit gains. How does that happen? This is a a category that we would think never has growth. How do you do double-digit gains in kitty litter? Fresh Step Clean Paws is the biggest innovation in the category today. And it's also the most successful one in our recent history. If you think about kitty litter, there's still a lot of consumer dissatisfaction out there. And Clean Paws delivers low tracking litter that makes sure that the litter doesn't track on your pet's paws and doesn't get into your homes. So this is one that's very easy for consumers to understand. It's a great innovation. It's a consumer preferred product. And we're backing it up with meaningful advertising sales promotion skewed towards where consumers are, and that's online. Almost 60% of our advertising sales promotion dollars this fiscal year will be online, which is where the consumers are. All right, well, let me so ask that last we question. Feel, Go ahead. I'm sorry, Ben. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. We, we feel like uh, this is an innovation that symbolizes the strength of the Clorox brand building power. All right. The last question I have is about online. That's incredible. We've seen you go up, 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 and you're a thought leader in the the category. Uh, Does Facebook create a problem for you with the bad publicity and you just shift it over to Alphabet and what they're doing? So we have great confidence in our capabilities to engage consumers online, which is why we're shifting the dollars increasingly into this space. Social media is only a very small part of our online spend. But what I will tell you is that Facebook is investing to create a safer environment for our brands and more transparency. So for companies like Clorox, in the long run, those are good things. Wow, that's great to know. Okay, because I think people are concerned that maybe it's for show. Obviously, that is not. What an amazing quarter. And just to stand out both on the cost side, but of course, the innovation side, we're the real driver. Thank you so much to Ben Odor, Chairman and CEO of Clorox. What a company. May have money's back after the break. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com slash apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps. People love franchises that appear to be unassailable. There's nothing like owning a market, plain and simple, where you just don't have many competitors nipping at your heels. Why the heck do you think people got so hung up on Fang to begin with? It's because they're as close as you can get to being monopolies without breaking any antitrust laws. As troubled as Facebook may be, Hey, nice move today, though. No one's about to leapfrog past them or even try to hop up their leg. Maybe that's why it's starting to come back a little. Amazon dominates not just retail, but it's got a huge presence in the cloud. Netflix? 
anybody even close. Alphabet, incredibly, their market share just keeps getting larger and larger. Same goes for Apple. While it's only the third largest smartphone maker by volume, it's unrivaled at the high end of the market. Investors will pay up for that kind of thing. But then you've got the companies that are at war, duking it out with each other every day. Competition may be the lifeblood of capitalism, but it is an anathema to making money. As an investor, you want to own companies with as little competition as possible. Last night, we saw competition writ large, and it's an ugly thing to behold. It immediately reflects negatively on stock prices. Let me take off the monsters and demons that were munching down on their rivals, making their stocks treacherous to own. First, Wynn Resorts. Wow, it reported a subpar quarter. Those of us who remember all the work former CEO Steve Wynn did to stay ahead of his peers blanched at this quarter. The competition has become intense, particularly in McCall's multi-billion dollar high roller VIP market. And that's why there was a shortfall. When things got tougher in this segment, Steve put on the gas and he took share. Now that things are better, the market share gains are waning, and so are the earnings. And frankly, I could argue so is the inspiration. What about Yum China and Starbucks? When Yum broke itself up, you were supposed to go for the growth-oriented Yum China or the income-oriented Yum brands. Looks like the latter's got both and the former just plain ugly. KFC, formerly a beloved brand in China, placed couples would go to get married, but it had flat numbers. Flat? I remember numbers that were in the double digits. That's competition for you. Meanwhile, Starbucks announced a huge partnership with Alibaba to offer perfect delivery for 2,000 Chinese stores, as well as all sorts of novel ways to get your coffee without standing in line. What can I say? On the previous conference call, Starbucks talked about the necessity of these moves. Why? In part because the competition had caught up with them, as you will hear later in the show. When we talk to Starbucks' CEO, Kevin Johnson, you never want to hear that stuff about competition. But unlike Yum China, at least Starbucks has got a plan to fight back. Little Alpha called Red Robin Gourmet pre-announced the downside last night, and its stock plunged nearly 20%. We don't have much information other than knowing that Red Robin's seeing a 3.6% decline in same-store sales. And we don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. This is about the burger wars, and the burger wars are breaking out all over the place. Got to see what happens to Shake Shack tonight, but... That's McDonald's! Yeah, even McDonald's are being hurt. Occasionally, you get a company that can rise above the fray. T-Mobile just keeps winning and winning and winning and winning. They wrangle 1.6 million new postpaid customers, which, according to CEO John Ledger, means they're growing two times faster than AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and Comcast combined. But even here, T-Mobile feels the need to merge with Sprint in order to compete with AT&T and Verizon, as the carriers will need to spend fortunes to bid out the next generation of wireless technology called 5G. Ledger may be right that merging with Sprint is the only real way to fend off these behemoths. So if you want to know why some stocks tend to get hot while others are decidedly not, remember, it's all about competition. The unassailable franchises tend to give you larger gains than the stocks of companies that have actually have to fend off rivals. Of course, capitalism doesn't work without competition, but your portfolio can certainly live without it. Nick in Colorado. Nick! Booyah, Jim. Big fan of the show. Thanks for all you do. Of course. Thank you. Uh, My question is regarding Dunkin' Brands. With the recent news of the partnership of Starbucks and Alibaba, which opens up Alibaba's delivery services to Starbucks in China, along with Starbucks' continued expansion in China, and having a similar price-to-earnings ratio as Starbucks, 
Should I continue to hold my position in Duncan? You know, there would be a time where I would have questioned that. I would have said, you know what, it's just not special enough. But Duncan has very inexpensive prices. They don't tout that enough. And Duncan's been really, really strong in terms of growing growing in our own country. So, no, you want to own Duncan. It's getting a higher P. There was a short seller came on and blasted it. And I went through everything he said. And frankly, all made me want to do is buy more. Let's go to Joe in Washington. Joe. Hey, Jim. How's it going? I am doing real good, Joe. How about you? Great. Hey, I was calling because uh, I had a question about Salesforce. Seeing as how it's been uh, pretty erratic um, and have other names in the uh, tech and cloud area following the uh, Facebook earnings report, I'm not sure if I should sell my uh, rather large position uh, to – uh, alleviate further losses, right? Or should I just uh, well, I mean, you know, let, like look, let, you know, look, let, let's be careful, Joe. First of all, um, I'm going to be talking about this stock next week when I do my club call for ActionSourcePlus.com. But I mean, this stock has had an unbelievable move. It's only down a few from its high, which was on a, just a kind of squeeze up. I think you should not touch Salesforce. As a matter of fact, we just bought some in the 130s for my charitable trust, which is why it is so top of mind. And look, the stock's been amazing. And Mark Benioff has done a terrific job, and I think he will continue to do so. We've liked it since $8. Competition makes the world go round and makes some stocks winners and others losers. Much more made money ahead. Starbucks just got up in its caffeine fight in China after announcing a deal with Alibaba. I'll find out if the move can keep your portfolio caffeinated or is there too much competition? Then with trade concerns looming, could today's drop in Dow DuPont be a red flag? I'm going to sit down with the CEO of its Dow Chemical Division after earnings. And all your calls are rapid fire and tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I mean, if I was Don Rickles, you wouldn't have laughed. <laughs> no, Rickles. No, you wouldn't have laughed at Rickles. Rickles was, was unbelievable. Pretty, Rickles was pretty darn funny. Yeah. He was great. Yes. I saw him live. And okay. you, my friend, are no Rickles. <laughs> it all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. What does Starbucks need to do to get its groove back? After roaring steadily higher for ages, the stock of Starbucks peaked a few years ago. This once great growth story had begun to see slowing traffic trends in the Americas, and even its huge Chinese business wasn't quite living up to the hype and started going down. But Starbucks is not the kind of company that just sits on its hands. These guys are trying to get the group back by investing heavily in the PRC, even with the current trade tensions existing. Last time we saw the latest step in their plan, a partnership with Alibaba to roll out delivery at more than 2,000 stores and much more. So could this be enough to breathe new life back into the stock? Yesterday, we got a chance to check in with Kevin Johnson, the president and CEO of Starbucks. Take a look. Mr. Johnson, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, good morning from Shanghai, China. It's great to be here. Okay, first I want to ask, as let's say you're a shareholder of Starbucks. You've seen the Starbucks trajectory in China go from high single digits to mid to low to minus two. Can we listen to this announcement and presume that you can get back on a trajectory of positive same-store sales numbers in China? Well, Jim, I'll first just remind you that in China last quarter, we posted a 17% top-line growth. Most of the growth of transactions in China is coming from our new store growth. 
Now, yes, we did have uh, a negative 2% same-store sales uh, comp last quarter. But you know, if what I look at what we're doing here with Alibaba and the digital flywheel and enabling delivery, this is like rocket fuel for the digital flywheel in China. And this will be an accelerator for our business, no doubt. All right, let's talk about China. Last night, we were talking to Tim Cook. He talked about tariffs and unintended consequences. We know Yum China reported a number uh, that I felt was actually kind of uh, suboptimal. We know that there are trade disputes. Peter Navarro, top guy in the White House, talking always tough about China. Where do you come down on tariffs? What do they mean? And what does this announcement do for people who are concerned that maybe there might be a boycott one day of Starbucks or Starbucks could be out of it with the PRC? Well, look, Jim, we've been in, Starbucks, uh, we've been in, in China for nearly 20 years now. In fact, uh, we came to China in 1999, the same year that Alibaba Group was founded. And over that period, we have built Starbucks China in China for China. You know, we're playing the long game. And now with this deep partnership with Alibaba Group, you know, a, a well-known uh, world-class tech company based here in China, we're going to co continue to play the long game and focus on what we do and what we do well, which is premium coffee, a premium experience in the third place, and now extending it to the digital world in a way that no one else will. So the geopolitical stuff that's going on, it will continue to go on. But we're going to stay focused on the long game for Starbucks in China. Well, I presume that you do have some contacts in Washington. If you get to speak with President Trump, what would you tell him about your relationship with China and how companies in China that are American can win? And it's not just zero sum. Well, you know, we've had a wonderful experience in China, certainly over that period. You know, and I think the approach that we've taken has been one of uh, approaching the market with humility and respect for the Chinese culture and the Chinese consumer. You know, we've done uh, the R&D that we do here in China. You know, we'll tune some of the beverage and the flavor profiles in the food for the Chinese consumer. You know, we hire local uh, store uh, contractors to build our stores. The store design team sits here in China. So by embracing the Chinese culture and approaching the market in the right way, you know, we believe that you can really have a very symbiotic relationship and grow a very healthy business like Starbucks in China by taking that approach. Do you think, do you think, Kevin, that the White House is taking the right approach? Are they playing the long game? Are they showing the respect to the customers that you have at Starbucks in China? Well, what do you think about the way that they are treating China? Well, Jim, you know, it's, you know I, I step back and say, you know, geopolitical uh, politics unfold all the time across the world. And, you know, my role at Starbucks is to stay focused on doing the right thing for Starbucks in every market that we operate. You know, we're at uh, over 28,000 stores in 77 countries. So geopolitical issues that crop up now and then are not new to us. Uh, and the approach we've always taken is let's be true to Starbucks. Let's be true to our mission and our core values, and let's do what we do well. And if we play the long game and play in that, uh, in that mode, we found it to be effective for us. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. And, uh, you know, we'll let the politicians deal with the geopolitical situation. We're going to stay focused on Starbucks. One last question. I recently saw you donning the apron when you were at Nashville at Starbucks. What did you learn from your associates when you were behind the counter? Because you're a nuts and bolts guy, boots on the ground guy, not a big, not I don't think he was a big political guy. I see you behind with the apron and it suits you. 
Well, Jim, uh, you know, I appreciate that comment. You know, I went to Nashville uh, two weeks ago for a day to work in our stores because we had just launched a new summer series, new beverages, a new afternoon program in 12 stores in Nashville. And I wanted to experience it firsthand. So yeah, I was in Nashville, I put on the green apron, I got behind the bar, I made beverages with our partners, I listened to our partners on what was working, what they would tune. You know, I had a great opportunity to sit and, uh, and talk with customers. And you know, the fun part for me is I can go in these stores and put on the green apron and, and people don't necessarily know who I am. But uh, in doing that, they will share all kinds of feedback with me. So it's a great experiential way to learn and to then bring those learnings back so that we can continue to innovate and improve across the company. All right, Kevin Johnson, thank you for coming on and talking about your new and, yes, historical partnership with Alibaba. And it's great to see you, sir. Best of luck. That's Kevin Johnson, CEO, Starbucks. May have money's back in. It is time! It's time for the light And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate dive! Time for the lightning round. Here's the Let's start with Greg in Texas. Greg. Hey, Jim. Big booyah to you. Booyah. Hey, I've owned Southwest here for a couple years, and uh, after the last few starting, just kind of curious what uh, what I should do going forward. I think you should buy more. That's right. I thought that Gary Kelly acquitted himself very well when he was on. I like the cost structure there. I like the fact the economy's growing, and I do think that fuel could be peaking. Let's go to Jerry in Texas. Jerry. Hey, Jim. How are you today? I am good. How about you? Good. Doing well. Hey, I'm calling about a company with a cloud-based subscription management platform that you've talked about. Mid-June, they were at $38. They're down about 35% now. It's Zora Inc., Z-U-O. Should I buy more here? You know, Chen Zhu is brilliant. He's the CEO. When the stock got to mid-30s, we said, ka-ching, ka-ching. Then we said it was going to go back down, and that's when we said you should buy it, and you should be buying that stock right now, and you should also be reading his book about the subscription economy. You'll understand why we like Salesforce. You'll understand why we like Apple Service Stream, and you'll understand why we like Zora. Let's go to Susan in Oregon. Susan. Hi, Jim. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Hey, right. I am retired in, in my 60s, and I'm definitely a long-term best investor. But Northrop Grumman has been taking some dips in the last four or five days. Should I buy some more? Uh, yeah, the quarter, the candidly, dip? the quarter wasn't that great, Susan. It was not a standout quarter. I prefer Raytheon, which had a good quarter but then did, didn't hold up. I think that stock is a cheaper stock than Northrop Grumman because it's got much greater growth prospects. Bunch of Trust owns it. Let's go to Yvonne in Maryland. Yvonne. Hi, Jim. This is Yvonne from Maryland. Hi. Hi, but I'm going to give you a big Abington High School booyah. Gold, a galloping ghost booyah right back at you. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you know, you can take the boy and the girl out of Philly, but you can't take the Philly out of the boy and oh, the Oh, no, absolutely not, particularly the accent. What's going on? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you about exact sciences, symbol E-X-A-S. They reported yesterday with mixed news, but revenue was up 78% year over year. The stock was down 22% after hours, and I bought some. It's back quite a bit, but what do you say about yeah, it? I, look, buy? I'm not going to be against the buy. Uh, the stock was down hideously earlier today, but they did have to spend more money to be able to get those sales in, and that's the problem. 
It's the additional expense structure that's going to have to be put on. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. All right, what just happened to the stock of Dow DuPont? This story should be all about a business taking control of its own destiny. Last year, two of the world's largest chemical companies merged to create this colossus. Next year, the combined entity will break itself up into three separate businesses, an agriculture company, a material science company, and a specialty products play. But what does Wall Street care about? Raw costs. Dow DuPont reported this morning, and even though the company posted a nice top and bottom line beat, I like this. With real strength across all three businesses, the stock sold off anyway, down 2.2%. Why? Well, because management talked about a couple of headwinds, the strong dollar, rising raw costs. I think that may be a mistake to focus on. What matters here is the breakup. So as we get closer to the three-way to corporate divorce, I want to introduce you to the individual components that will be trading of Dow DuPont. Tonight, we're starting with the education of of the material sciences division, the part of the company that's taking the name Dow Chemical after the split. This business makes various high-end high coatings along with chemicals used in the energy infrastructure industries and all sorts of packaging, especially plastics. Its sales were up an astounding 18% in the latest quarter. In short, there is a whole lot to like here. My Chapel Trust owns the stock. Let's dig deeper with Jim Fitterly. He's the chief operating officer for Dow DuPont's material sciences division, who will become the CEO of the post-breakup Dow Chemical. Find out what the future holds for his business. Mr. Fiddley, welcome to Man Money. Good Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Jim. Have a seat. Thank you. All right, now, Jim, I got to tell you, it was a hard call because you're still dealing with three different companies all under one roof. We're going to get these Form 10s that I think is really going to excite people coming up. Those are going to describe what, what's different, but uh, what, what the companies will look like. But this division that you're running, we're talking about double-digit gains in businesses that I didn't think had even single-digit growth. Is that share take? Is it high quality? Is it laser focus? How are you putting up these numbers? Well, we have a very focused team, Jim, but we've also been investing in organic growth in the core of these businesses. So, you know we've built a big joint venture in Saudi Arabia with Sadara, and that's up and running, and you're seeing the full effect of that coming in now. We also built a lot of assets on the U.S. Gulf Coast to take advantage of shale gas, and that's up, and it's been running for a year. We've got, actually got two more expansions coming on the end of this year. So you are basically the low-cost producer of what you do produce. We are, and we work very hard to keep improving the cost position. In fact, both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Gulf Coast were the lowest-cost places for us to build to service the market. Sadara was built to service Asia, Africa, right. Middle East, and Asia-Pacific, China. And U.S. Gulf Coast to service North and Latin America. A lot of people have been saying, well, these guys are going to get killed because of the tariffs. But China gets Sidara, right? And that matters. That, that does not count as like, well, wait a second, we got a sticker in America. Well, it matters. And, and look, we, we tried to build that up deliberately because we saw that the world was changing. Right. We saw that the trading block in the Americas made a lot of sense. The supply chains are tighter. It's not as expensive for us to move product. And the trading block in the Middle East to Asia Pacific, there's a well-developed supply chain there. So we, we played off of that. But we also had a great partner that wanted to build with us and wanted to build out the technologies that we have. When I mention plastic to younger people, they say plastic is that giant island that's the size of, the, of Antarctica in an ocean. And that's what plastic did. It wrecked the environment. I see numbers that indicates that that may be what the millennials are saying in plastic straws, plastic cups. But the world is still going toward plastic. Plastics are a great sustainability story. They're the most sustainable package in the world. And they're the fastest growing packaging in the world. We do have a plastic waste problem, though. 
And at this point in time, I've never seen the industry more aligned about tackling that problem. We've been working on a very big initiative, which you're going to hear more about in the coming months, which is to go after this plastic waste issue. Oh, oh, that's, you have to do that, sir, or else your stock is not going to be owned by any millennials. Well, every year we make 400 million metric tons of plastics as an industry, all, all types of plastics, and they go into many different markets. We're dealing with about 8 million metric tons per year that ends up as a waste problem. It's not acceptable. We have to address it. And the good news is the industry has many solutions to do it. They're aligned through the ACC, through CEFIC in Europe, and through our other international chemistry councils. We're working on a joint program which can bring in our other value chain partners, bring in NGOs, bring in private money, work with governments to try to develop signature projects and solutions that are actually going to tackle this issue. At the same time, if I am a carbonated uh, beverage person, I have to say that the aluminum pricing has now been priced out, uh, that there's basically a cartel among some of those companies. The only thing that could bust it is plastic. Are you getting people to switch from aluminum to plastic? Because aluminum just shot up so much. There are always a trade-off in packaging. So whenever one package price gets too high or whenever there's another issue, people switch. When they switch to plastics, typically they switch for a couple of reasons. It's the lightest weight package and it's the strongest package. So compared to, say, glass or aluminum, you can make a flexible pouch that's recyclable as well and you can put it in plastic. Less shipping cost, less environmental footprint, you know, better CO2 footprint overall. Well, the same thing, I, I was on a Trex call yesterday. They're smart guys and they're just talking about how wood priced out that you just can't afford to do wood. There are plastics now that look every bit as wood but are much more durable. I mean, again, I'm seeing these new uses. Are they part of what's driving double-digit gains? Exactly, and new markets growing up. So the growing middle class drives a lot of what happens in packaging. So North America, for example, we had 8% growth in our packaging, especially plastics business, this quarter. That's, that's a big number. Most yeah. people don't expect that in North America. We had double digits in Asia Pacific. We have double digits in other parts of the world. But it's because you've got a growing economy and you've got a change in markets. People are moving from fresh foods that are not processed to package. Every time we put food in a package, we increase the shelf life a week wow. to two weeks on the shelf. That's a big value chain uh, improvement for the, the owners, the retailers, the homeowners as well. All right, the last question is people are constantly asking me, uh, when, 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 when do I have to own it? When do, I'm telling people to buy it now because it's going to be evident to all the big institutions soon, but when will we see you as a CEO of an independent company? We're going to be spun out by the end of first quarter 2019. Okay. You're going to see a Form 10 from us in September. I think you're going to see a Form 10 from Ag in October. You're going to see an Investor Day in November. And we're going to be on the road from that point on getting ready to spin this new company out. Well, I don't want to cite the other guys, but this is the division that I think has got the best growth. And I think you're terrific at doing what you're doing. That's Jim Fitterling. He's Dow Chemical CEO. Now, right now, it's, it's Dow DuPont. Just stay patient. But I think you got to buy the big cap right now, Dow DuPont, before we get to the breakup. They have money's back in I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. 
CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.